Great. If you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to read some verses from verse 7. So it's Ephesians 4, verse 7. And it says this, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, I've read that because we're starting a new series called Launching into Leadership, and we're looking at the art of developing potential. And when we're talking about launching into leadership, do you know, it doesn't matter how much someone mentors you, how much someone encourages you, how much someone cares for you, there comes a point where you've actually got to take the plunge and launch into leadership. And I'm hoping that in this series we'll do two things. One, we'll be giving some good counsel to those that are trying to mentor people and encourage people into leadership. But also, if you're someone who is considering stepping into some form of leadership, that this will give you the boldness to do just that. Now, one of the things that really strikes me about leadership is that I think it's actually one of God's chief means of developing potential in all of us. Now, you might not say, oh, I'm not a great leader, but you don't have to be a great leader. We're not talking about necessarily leading congregations of thousands. It might just be taking a lead in your home. It might just be taking a lead in your workplace, taking a lead in your family, just taking a lead in your neighborhood. It could be something relatively small. But it's amazing how many times God just gives us that little push into leadership in some form or other, because when we respond to that, it starts developing whole areas of potential in our lives that would otherwise remain dormant. And one of the other things I've noticed is this, that no matter how much counsel you can get from secular leadership manuals, and there's a whole lot of good stuff out there, I think that the principles in scripture will take you just that bit further. It'll draw out more than you can get from the manuals. Okay? Now that's not despising the manuals, it's saying you can use that, but to go that bit further, you really need to get some of God's counsel on the whole issues of leadership. In fact, I think some of the things that are the best items in the manuals actually came out of the Bible in the first place anyway, whether people realise it or not. So I'm going to pick up on godly principles to do with developing leadership. And I think they are mainly uh, given to God. I think that's where it has to begin. Given to God's word, given to God's plan, given to people. I think that's really important in leadership. Um, you know, you can talk about leading, but if you don't actually have a commitment to people, it's just a bit of an academic exercise, isn't it, the leadership? It needs to be relational. And then given to partnership is important. Leadership isn't just about doing it all on your own. And then 
given to patients because it's a learning process at the same time. And as we go through that, we're going to illustrate all of these things with lessons from different people in the Bible. And we're going to start by looking at given to God. And as we do this, I want to compare and contrast, as we always used to have to have in uh, various um, essays we used to write, compare and contrast. And we're going to do that with Samson and John the Baptist. Perhaps not a particularly likely combination, but as I've prepared this series, I've enjoyed finding pairs of people, Old Testament, New Testament, male, female, that can really help us get an insight into this whole question of, of leadership. So what are we going to look at as we pick up on Samson and John the Baptist? Well, I've, I've put down three themes that I want to, to pull out. Um, I want to look at the parenting thing, first of all, because some people have got this idea that leadership is a kind of inherited quality. And when you go to certain parts of the world and everyone is trying to pass on their ministry to their offspring, you could almost think that you have to be born into it in order to get it. Well, there are some advantages when it looks at uh, the whole pattern of uh, leadership that can be there running through families. And I wouldn't want to rule that out because I'm sure that some of you are praying for your own children that they will actually come into ministry and have leadership gifts develop themselves. So we don't want to rule out the parenting connection, but I don't want to make such a big thing of it that those of you that haven't come from some incredible Christian heritage are going to sit here thinking that you're seriously disadvantaged because you're not. Let's also pick up on the power of purity, because I think in some ways that's even more important. It doesn't matter who your parents were or what your Christian heritage is. If you mess up, then you're going to lose a lot of the power that you could have had through that legacy. And then the other thing I want to look at is persistence, the ability just to keep on going and going and going in leadership. And you'll see that to be really important as we go through. So the first thing we want to pick up on and look at is what I've just called the power of parenting. Just looking at that whole question about the legacy in leadership. Now, I'll put my hand up and say that, yes, I actually do come from a line of preachers. So uh, my grandfather was a Salvation Army officer and my father was a preacher. And so, you know, and I'm believing it will go on down the line. But, you know, I'm just putting my hand up to that before we go any further. But come and see what the Bible says. Look at John chapter 1. Verse 6, we're talking about John the Baptist here, and it has an amazing commendation for John. Now, you do realise that John had a sort of pedigree, really, didn't he? There was his father, Zacharias, there ministering in the temple. I expect John was expected to have a sort of temple ministry as well in the family line, but he didn't do it the orthodox way. And there's a few of us that haven't quite done it the orthodox way over the years, and I must admit I'm probably in that category. But we still mustn't despise the legacy that we have. So John 1 says this, and I'm just going to read from verse 6, where it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light, but was, uh, he was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. What a powerful statement. There was a man sent from God. I guess that everyone who aspires to leadership in a Christian context would want to have that kind of authority stamp, sent from God. Uh, that is just such a powerful statement. Let's add to that by looking at Luke chapter 1, and I'll read from verse 39, just to get a little bit more insight 
into John the Baptist and his background. Luke 1, 39 says this. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leapt in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there was a fulfilment of those things which were told her from the Lord. You can see that John's uh, response was pretty early on, wasn't it really? Uh, Some of us get around to making up our minds where we're going in life quite late. And here is John the Baptist leaping in his mother's womb just as soon as she encounters the mother of her Lord. Incredible scripture there. But let's look back in Judges because Samson's a very different character but you're going to be surprised at how some of these things line up. Judges chapter 13. It says this in verse 2. Now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink, and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. Well, I want to celebrate truth and dispel a myth. It is a great truth that godly parents are a benefit. So please, be godly parents and realise that you're a benefit to your children. But it's also a myth that you need godly parents in order to make it in the kingdom of God. It's perfectly possible to be out there from the most unhelpful background and yet actually have an incredible testimony and an incredibly effective ministry. The reality is, of course, that no matter what your parenting background is, that I would encourage you to celebrate it. Now, you might find that a little bit hard. You might say, oh, you know, my background's tremendous disadvantage. I was abused, and I know some people have been in that position. I've been neglected. But find something that you can celebrate. Because we're told that we are to honour our parents. Now, I've discovered that there are two ways in which you can honour your parents. You can honour your parents by saying wonderful things about them, and it's good to do that. It's good to find the positive things that you can say. But you can also honour your parents by being that which will bring them credit. Now, I struggled at certain points because I wasn't sure that what I was doing was what my parents wanted me to do. You know, they had a, a, a career plan for my life and a ministry plan for my life and something else. And I went down a somewhat different route. And I struggled at many points thinking, am I really honouring my parents? And I felt God spoke to me in the midst of that and said, if you are doing what I want you to do, then in the end you will be bringing more honour to your parents than if you're just doing what they want you to do. Because I I just got this sense that in the end, Paul expresses it like this, doesn't he? He talks to the Philippian church, he says, you are my joy and my crown. 
I want in some way to be, as it were, part of a joy and a crown to my parents by being something that the Lord wants me to be. So that's just how I see it. In the end, they will get more credit before God for what we've become if we've become what God wants us to be than if we've just stayed tied back in what family expectations might be. Does that make sense to you? certainly made a big lot of sense to me when God spoke that into my heart. But there's that reality of needing to celebrate what we've got in our background. But you may well need to augment it. You see, because no matter how good your parenting is, there are going to be skills and abilities that you need to acquire that you won't have got in that natural process, in that family home. If you're going to be in ministry, it's good to find people who've got the ministry gifts that will equip you. There's a verse in Song of Solomon, which I, I really love. I think it's a, a great piece of counsel to, to those that are, uh, are considering ministry. Because um, there's a question in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, which says this in verse 7. Tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? And this is how the beloved in Song of Solomon replies in chapter 1, verse 8. If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. Yeah, as soon as I saw that verse, I thought, that is what I'm going to do. I'm going to find out where there are people who know how to shepherd the flock and I'm going to feed my little goats somewhere around there. Now, when I started doing church, you know, please, I'm not referring to anyone here as a little goat, but, you know, it, it was compared with some of the big flocks that other people were looking afterwards, just a very, very small handful of people. And yet, you can feed your little goats by someone else's flock and you can pitch your tent by those shepherd's tents and you can learn a tremendous amount you are not limited to being what your parents have been. You're not even limited to what your parents want you to be. You can be whatever you want to be and whatever God wants you to be and you can augment whatever experience you've had in the natural by connecting with people that can add into your life. Now, I want to say, you don't just have to go on a hunt for a spiritual father. Now, it's great if you can find someone who can do that for you. That's marvellous. But Paul says, you do not have many fathers. He didn't bring it down to just one. He's actually implying there that you can learn from a number of different people in a number of different ways. And people do have different abilities. The scripture that I read at the beginning from Ephesians is very clear in that, that we need apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers to equip us. Why do we need all of those things to equip us? Because they're all going to bring something different into our life. It's great to have an apostolic mentor, but I also need to have someone who will encourage me in evangelism. Now, I know apostles can do evangelism, but you can put some of these things together. We need to learn what we can, where we can, and augment that which we have. Now, John the Baptist had godly parents. You can see that. You've already seen how his mother went and visited, uh, well, Mary went and visited his mother. There was that connection. She was someone who was worth knowing. Zachariah, bless him, he struggled there in the presence of God. 
But even so, what a man. And yet, there was so much more that John the Baptist had to learn. Now, sometimes it isn't just mentoring, is it? Sometimes it's being prepared just to set yourself apart and be alone with God. Very often we're just thinking that we can learn it all from someone else. But if you're really going to pitch your tent by the shepherd's tent, then that's going to mean you've got to spend time alone with God. And I think John the Baptist's wilderness experience, a bit like Paul's uh, experience when he went off uh, into Asia and spent time alone with God, was absolutely crucial for his ministry formation. So you're getting this idea. There is a power of parenting. There is a place for celebrating what you've got, no matter how good, bad or whatever. Find something positive in there that you can say so that you can honour. But also honour your parents by being what God wants you to be. And find ways in which you can augment that kind of experience so that you can build it up in a spiritual way to gather what you can, where you can, and to learn from as many people as possible. Paul talked about being separated from his mother's womb. Now, that's particularly important because Paul regards himself as the chief of sinners. Okay, that's what he says, isn't it? Why did he say he was the chief of sinners? He'd persecuted the church, he'd had people put to death, he'd basically blasphemed the name of Christ, and yet he says he was separated from his mother's womb. I want to encourage all of you who've maybe come from a background that was not conducive to walking in the ways of God from childhood, to look at the life of Paul and to say, well, if he can say he was separated from his mother's womb, there's a very strong possibility that I can say the same. You know, you have to come to terms with the fact that at some point God had his eye on you even when you wish he hadn't, because you were doing things that you know as it says in Habakkuk, God is of holier eyes than to look upon sin. Well, I think he's very gracious. He might have averted his eye, but he was still there at the door. He wasn't going to let go of you. He was waiting for you, and he had that heart towards you right from the beginning. And I don't think there's anyone in ministry today who couldn't in some way say that God had marked them out. Yeah, I know it's like this, that when you get saved, you, you, you see this big sign in front of you, it's a big door, and there's this sign saying, choose this day whom you'll serve. And we respond on that basis. We make the choice. But it's when we look round that we see on the other side of the gate that it says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And there's a sense in which God had his eye on each one of us way before we realised it. In fact, you know, you could go beyond that and you can see uh, in so many other places, I could go to other scriptures as well, but this sense of being separated is really quite important. Uh, I've mentioned... uh, Galatians 1, where Paul talks about being separated right from his mother's womb. But 1 Timothy 1 is also quite interesting in just seeing the way that that God works. You know how Paul had his heart set on Timothy in the ministry. I'm sure I'm going to come back to this during the rest of this teaching series. But in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, there's a, a scripture that I just want to read. It says this, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Okay, I wanted that to stand alongside the Galatians verse. That the chief of sinners can say he was separated from his mother's womb. So, I don't want you to have to spend all your life telling your negative testimony. I know that some books are very popular, 
because the, the negative bit before the person gets saved is so dramatic. Uh, I gave someone a book once and I said, read this testimony book. And then asked them later on, what did you think of it? They said it was really exciting until the person got saved. And I thought, that was not meant to be how you responded to the story. Some of these things that, that we go on about, we, we can rule them out. They're just, they're just in parenthesis in our lives. You know, God set his eye on you in the beginning, and in the end he got hold of you. And wherever you went in the middle, well, uh, forget that. It wasn't part of the big plan and purpose, really. You're back on track now, hallelujah. And that's what really counts. And I guess that's how it was for Paul as well. But what about Timothy, you know? There's a sense that here he comes into the ministry. He's being brought into the ministry. Got uh, a, a Jewish mother, a Gentile father. Paul takes him and circumcises him. Now, you could say that was simply so that he would be acceptable in the kind of areas where Paul might end up ministering. Interesting, as Paul was going to minister a lot amongst the Gentiles, that he felt he needed to do that because of the Jews. But, you know, I think there's another sense as well in which it's like a connection that God is almost saying over this young man's life, listen, I want to cut you off from the past and establish you in the present. And I think there's a very real sense in which all of us need to say, look, the real circumcision that counts is circumcision of heart. And when you come to Christ, no matter what's gone before, he sorts all of that out and you're back on track. And that's good news. So I think a sense of separation and, and calling is key for every one of us. You just need to know that, that God's had his eye on you from the beginning, that he did separate you out, even though you might have got entangled with all sorts of other things on the way. He did call you. But we need to be genuine in that realisation. There needs to be a humility about it. It's not an opportunity to get all delusional, as some people do, you know, really feeling there's a great burden about being separated from their mother's womb and called into the ministry. It's not meant to be a heavy thing. It's meant to be a releasing thing. I'm not talking about launching you into ministry by putting a great stone around your neck and pushing you off the diving board. I want you to be able to swim when you get into that pool. So see this as something light. John was a man sent from God. And it's important not just to see what you're set apart from, but actually to see what you're set apart to. Um, sometimes when we're talking about holiness, it's all about what we're set apart from, isn't it? I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't do the other. Actually, holiness isn't about that. It's about what we've become. It's not what we've left, it's what we've gained, it's what we've received, it's what we've taken hold of. So take a little time to, to reflect on that, that you're separated unto God, and that's important. Jeremiah, of course, is another one, and in chapter 1, verse 5, it's amazing how many times you find at the start of these uh, prophetic words that someone had this sense of calling. It says this in Jeremiah 1, verse 1, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, says the Lord. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. So be encouraged. There's a sense of parenting in this. It may not be your, your earthly parents, but, but God, as our Father, has got his eye upon us and his heart upon us. And just to put it all back in perspective, when you're talking about calling, you know, before you get all puffed up and start thinking, God has need of me, God has called me, you know, I am the most important person on the planet, just remember that when the master had need of 
Do you remember the, what, what he had need of? It was a donkey, wasn't it? So, yeah, <laughs> tell them the master has need of. Well, if he has need of you, it doesn't mean that you are the most important person on the planet. It just means that in his grace and in his love, he's got purpose in his plan for you. And before you get too big for your boots, just remember that there are donkeys in his plan as well. So let's put that in perspective. Let's just take a slightly different tack now. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. This gives us a little bit more of an insight into John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 3. Verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I say unto you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I want to talk about the power of purity. You see, if given to God gives us some sense of the power of parenting, then it also should give us some sense of the power of purity. And this is where you get quite an interesting contrast between the two people that I've selected. You're looking at John the Baptist. His life was pretty austere, really. He chose to go out and live this sacrificial life, probably a bit like a hermit living out there in the desert, choosing to go down a route that his family probably didn't expect. He was meant to be there in the temple serving, and he's out there in, in the wilderness, raising crowds, doing all the things that aren't quite respectable, and dressed in the most obscure, I can't even call it fashion, because I don't even think it was fashionable at the time, but he was just dressed in strange things, and his diet was, well, weird to say the least. I mean, I've eaten grasshoppers and things, but, you know, I wouldn't necessarily choose locusts. But... I know different people think it's pods and things like that, so don't worry too much about that. But what I really want to establish with you is what is purity? What is purity? Is it, is it escaping from all of the things of the world and saying, look, now I'm leading an ascetic kind of life, so that's made me pure? What is it? And then when you take, by contrast, someone like Samson, you see that, well, he struggled in all kinds of areas, particularly with this purity issue. Now, John's message was a hard one to preach, wasn't it? To say to people, the axe is laid to the root, you've got to go into repentance. Now, if you're talking like that, it immediately raises this big question which comes up all the time in leadership and ministry. Is there a way in which you can separate the messenger out from the message? Now, we've all seen people that have had a great message but haven't exactly been great messengers. 
And God is very gracious. There are times when people have delivered an incredible message and yet their life has been a mess rather than a message. And there are other times when people have lived a life of great integrity, but they've not got a great preaching message. So how do these things fit together? Well, we do have to come back to the grace of God, and we do realise that, yes, there are times when the message is great, even if the messenger isn't. But there is a real power, isn't there, when the person delivering the message is able to live it out and exemplify it in their lives. And I think that must have been true for John the Baptist. And I think that must have been one of the reasons why people flocked and were prepared to listen to this person who, who was so fervent and so determined. But purity has to be more than that. It has to be a heart purity. And there are gifts and graces that God wants to put into our lives. And I know that we're meant to be developing the fruit of the Spirit in our life. You, you, it's meant to be growing. Uh, and and you know, who, would, who would know what, what John the Baptist would have become? He was probably quite a rough and ready character there in the wilderness. But even in rough and ready characters, if they're really surrendered to God, God is wanting to put the fruit of the Spirit into their lives. So there's going to be gentleness, there's going to be peace, there's going to be graciousness, there's going to be long-suffering, there's going to be all of these things working in as part of the purity and part of the holiness that God wants to bring into our lives. You see, purity is not just legalistic abstinence. It's actually the presence of something that God, in all of his purity, is putting into our lives. Again, it's as I was saying, it's not so much what you're separated from, it's what you're separated unto. Purity is not what you've given up, it's what's been added in by the grace of God, of his purity, of his love, you know, that people can actually, as it were, taste your life and experience the living waters of Christ's presence. That's the kind of purity that we want, that when they actually listen to you, they're not just hearing what was you in all of your former state, but they're actually getting something of Christ as they receive from your life. Now, I think in some areas Samson had this. He certainly had a sense of separation. Uh, and he took that separation seriously. But it was very much the legalistic separation. You don't cut your hair, you don't touch the drink. And there was a sense in which, for him, he thought the power was in the length of his hair and the power was in the abstinence from the drink. Actually, the power was in the obedience. The power was in the obedience. And that's where always the power will be. It'll be in the obedience, not in the outward observation. And that power was really important. But there is a distinction between that power and real purity. Samson never really got on top of some of his, his unchecked appetites. For him, life was a bit of a roller coaster. Now, it wasn't easy. I've got a lot of sympathy for him. You know, when, when God says, you know, go and marry a Philistine woman, it was part of the whole system for, for troubling the Philistine nation. And then, of course, she goes off somewhere else, and then he gets into... It just is, is, is one whole tangle, really. It almost seems at times as if God's using some of these burning passions in Samson's life. But they need to come under control. But there's this kind of sense in which when he's under that kind of pressure, in the end, somehow, his separation unto God always seems at the last minute to bring some sort of sense into his life. 
It's like when he was in that city with that harlot and the people of the town crowded round. In the end, he breaks the bar and the gate and he takes it out and sets that on the hill. And there's a testimony in that. And I wish we'd all get hold of that testimony that sin ensnares. And it's going to take a real sense of repentance in order to break free from the snare of sin. And the way that he broke the gate and the bar and everything else and set it on that hill, for me, is a tremendous picture of Calvary. Once he'd set that on the hill, it's almost like saying, I'm identifying with the Christ who died for me in order to break free from this terrible bondage of sin that Samson was getting into. There is a sense in which he really needed God's overruling grace in his life. Now, I'm going to give a scripture which I think brings all this together when it comes to purity. You can look at Samson and you can look at John the Baptist, but in the end we've got to look beyond them both. Because Jesus says this in Luke 7, 24. Just find it and follow it with me because it's an important scripture. Luke 7, 24, it says, When the messengers of John the Baptist had departed, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Put it another way, folks. You must be born again. <laughs> Someone asked Whitfield once, why do you always preach you must be born again? And his response was because you must be born again. <laughs> and there's only so far you can get with things like purity in your own strength. You can have a great sense of separation. You can have brilliant parents. Look at how faithful Manoah and his wife were in bringing up Samson. I mean, bless her, she really started the Nazarite process even before he was born. She was that committed herself. I mean, they were so committed to this. They were such dutiful parents. John the Baptist's parents, incredible. But here's Jesus saying, yes, among those born of women, there's no greater prophet than John the Baptist, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. Because you get into the kingdom of heaven by being born again. Unless you're born from above, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's not to say that John the Baptist is excluded from God's plans of salvation. It's not to say that Samson is outside the reach of all that God has on his heart. I don't believe that for one moment. 
I believe that there is a place for these Old Testament saints. And I'd almost put John the Baptist in that category because for me the New Testament begins with Christ's sacrifice, his resurrection and the, the outpouring of the Spirit which really establishes the New Covenant. But up until that point, there is a sense in which these people, although they're part of that cloud of witnesses, they're not made perfect apart from us. And we should not envy them because the Bible tells us they envy us and desire to look into the things that we've received. So there is a purity that we can enjoy. Now, I would then add that because there's a purity that we can enjoy, we've got a responsibility to enter into that purity. We can't look at Samson and go, well, look what he got away with. <laughs> Why can't I get away with all of that? Well, look at John the Baptist. He was a weird and wild man. I think I'd be weird and wild for Jesus. You can be if you want to be, but purity is more than being weird and wild. Purity is something that comes because God has worked something in your heart. Purity, yes, it needs to be imputed, and it is. The amazing thing is, we receive Christ's righteousness as a gift. But having had it imputed, it needs to be imparted. <laughs> it needs to be worked into our lives. Salvation is a crisis by which we are justified, which means we're legally acquitted. But sanctification is a process by which we're transformed. And we need to have a crisis and a process in our life. Because purity is something that God is working in us more and more and more. And there's a power in that purity. Let me just go back in Luke chapter 7, because I want to read a little bit more there as we look at the power of persistence. I'll read from verse 18. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things that Jesus did. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour Jesus cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you've seen and heard that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Persistence. You know, if you're going to be a leader, people will be following you. That's just the reality of what a leader is. If you're a leader, or you tell me you're a leader and no one's following you, you're not really a leader. You're just someone out for a walk on their own and there's no one coming after you. But a real leader has someone following. This is why we have to be so careful. Because if the shepherd is struck, the sheep are scattered. And I've just seen that happen so many times now. I don't want to see it happen again. Of course I'm concerned for the leader, but whoever that leader is, they're followers. They may not be a great leader, but they may only have a handful of followers, but I'm concerned for the followers. And it's so important that if you're going to be in leadership, you've got to know how to persist. Because if you desist, 
the people that have been following you will not know where to go and not know what to do. Now, that's one of the reasons we need to take hold of what Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So in other words, you're already making sure that from the time people start following you, you're actually connecting them up to the Lord. So that in the end, it's not so much you that they're following, they're following Jesus, which is a huge, huge, huge safeguard. But make no mistake about it, when a leader wobbles, people are affected. People are affected. Even if it's just disappointment in their heart, we want people to be able to avoid that disappointment. Now we do acknowledge humanity, we do acknowledge frailty and all the rest of it, And I want to say this to you, that no matter what level of leadership you're anticipating, whatever you're expecting to do, if it's just even being a leader in your home, you're going to need to be persistent. Because if you quit leading, it will affect the people that are following. And there will be many opportunities that you will have to quit leading. Because leadership is not easy. And one of the things that we're going to see very clearly about leadership is that you're not put into leadership because you're perfect. In fact, leadership is just one of God's ways of perfecting people. The only problem is that in leadership you're being perfected in public, whereas you would probably have preferred to have been perfected in private. Sometimes I think leadership is a bit like the contrast between cooking potatoes in a saucepan where you put them in and boil them up for 20 minutes and sticking them in a pressure cooker and getting them done quick. When God puts you in leadership, it is one way of getting you done quick because there is a need to make that sort of progress. This is why I say leadership is one of God's ways of developing potential. If you're prepared to launch into leadership, even in a limited way, you'll soon discover that God is developing the potential in your life far beyond that which you anticipated. But you will need to be persistent. You'll need to keep going even when it's tough. And there will be tough moments. Look at John the Baptist here. I think he sent these people with this extraordinary question to Jesus because he was struggling at this point. Now, why on earth was he struggling? I mean, the ministry of Jesus was great. People were being healed, people were being taught. But you see, God is a God of surprises. And when you think you've got it all sorted out, he will go and do something that is rather different from that which you expect. And when John the Baptist voiced it and said, are you he who is to come or do we look for another? Which always sticks in my mind because a friend of mine actually proposed to his wife using that expression. <laughs> Are you is the one to come or do we look for another? But So I always have that in my, in my mind. Some of you know this person. I won't actually say who, who he is. But in John the Baptist's case, there was an element of doubt, wasn't there? Somehow you're not quite what I expected. Now I don't know what John the Baptist expected, whether he expected that immediately Jesus would begin to baptise people in the Holy Spirit. Because that was his message, wasn't it? I will baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And, well, that's not what was happening. People were getting healed, they were hearing lovely sermons, they were having the gospel preached to them, there was change in their lives, their families. But no one 
was getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. No one was baptized with fire. <laughs> Jesus would say things like, well, I've come to send fire on the earth and I would that it were already kindled. You feel like saying, well, get on and kindle it then. You know, with, this is what we're expecting. Where's the fire? Where's the, where are all these people baptized in spirit? John the Baptist said, well, I made them all wet. Now can't you sort of <laughs> do a bit more? So he was obviously struggling. And I, I think sometimes God does it deliberately. That he has his agenda, which doesn't quite line up with ours, but we have to line up with him. He used to sing a song many years ago, um, Yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. All may change, but Jesus never. And I remember being in a meeting one day when someone said, let's stop singing that because it's not all may change, it's all must change. (laughs) Because in the end, it's not an option. We've got to line up with him. He's not going to line up with us. Yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is what? The same. So we've got to change. He's the rock that can't be moved. Praise God he's not going to fall on us, but we need to fall on him so that we break on the rock and become something different. And there will be times when it's going to feel like that, when you're looking and thinking, is this really what I signed up for? I thought my ministry by now would be this and my role would be that. And even John the Baptist, knowing that he must decrease so that Jesus could increase, was still struggling with this and thinking, where does it all work? But the need to persist, and you persist even when you don't understand. And sometimes you have to ask questions and make the adjustments. And that decrease can be painful. You know, we can all sign up to it and say, oh yes, I must decrease. But then when Jesus actually starts decreasing you, it becomes difficult, doesn't it? It's like so many people, they say, you know, I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I, I don't need to be treated differently from anyone else. I'm quite happy to be nobody. But the moment they're treated like nobody, they really let you know that they don't like being treated as nobody. It's, it's one thing to do it voluntarily, but when people start doing it for you... Hmm? So we can say, I will make myself of no reputation. But when someone comes along to help, it's not quite what you want, is it? <laughs> but there are so many things where we've got to go through and say, I'm going to persist. I'm going to persist. It just seems to be part of that givenness. See, some of us could look at at Samson and think, what a mess. What a mess. But I'll say one thing for him. He certainly kept coming back, didn't he? (laughs) Even in the end, even in the end, when he's pushing those pillars down, there's something in him which is saying, and I'll still be there at the end. There are many people who've messed up less than Samson who weren't there at the end. There's something about that persistence that's so important. Yeah, I think there's power in purity. There is power in sorting out this parenting thing. 
but there's a real power in persistence. And I just want to encourage you that if you're going to be a leader, you've got to carry on leading. It's not, I'll lead tomorrow, but I'll give up the day after. Somehow. Now, by all means, by all means, concentrate on the decrease that he might increase. Make sure that all the people you're leading are hooked onto Jesus. That is so, so important. But don't give up the leading. Don't deviate from the course. Don't wander off from the path. You know, the reality is we're not giving our lives to God on a loan basis. Uh, well, I'll lend my life to you for a few months, Lord, and you can see what you can do with it, but really it's a gift on elastic and I will be shortly pulling it back to wherever I want it to be. It's not that kind of arrangement. It's very clear, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20, you're, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. So my advice is if you've been bought with a price, the right response is be sold out. <laughs> and if you're bought out, you might as well be sold out. <laughs> because that's the only response, isn't it, in the end, that's going to count. I remember when I was baptised, the Baptist ministry baptised me. I'd obviously spent a long time seeking God, bless him, as to what scripture to give me. And I'm sure he looked for a verse, but he ended up with a letter, a whole letter. It was the letter to the church at Philadelphia in Revelation 3. And I have read that and read that and read that and got so much out of it over the years. But I always notice this. In verse 12 of Revelation 3, it says, He who overcomes, in other words, he who persists, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. Do you know, the most useless thing a pillar could be would be movable. <laughs> I'm here today, gone tomorrow. That means roof's up today, pile of rubble tomorrow. God's looking for people that he can say, if you persist, I'll make you a pillar in my house. When you read Galatians, you discover that when Paul went up to the church in Jerusalem. He was looking for pillars. He said he perceived that some people were, were pillars. He was looking for the pillars. And God looks for pillars, people that can persist. You probably know that verse, Revelation 2.10, where it says this at the end. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. This is just for me, the beginning of leadership, any kind of leadership. Real leadership for me that's sustainable involves being given to God. Because I know this much, when you're given to God, God is unreservedly given to you. And what's more, he actually gets in first. Because while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And if while we were yet sinners, he died for us, how much more are we going to be saved by his life? No, it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So, that's a bit of a tough start in some ways to talk about leadership in terms of giving to God. But I think it's where it has to begin. 
because it's God who's going to fashion us and equip us and enable us. Whether it's just taking the lead in our home or the lead in our office or fulfilling some kind of job in a secular environment where there's a leadership element, givenness to God is going to put something into your life of persistence and consistency that'll make a huge difference. It's the kind of thing that the world will notice. How do you manage to do that? Well, it's God, isn't it? And just remember, leaders have followers, so leaders have to keep going. So, my advice right at the start of this is, let's reprioritize our primary commitment. We all know that that commitment to the Lord has to be our primary commitment. It has to be the first thing, doesn't it? But let's reprioritize it. Let's say, I want it to be the first thing. We don't want to be like the Ephesian church who left the first love. We've got to reprioritize our primary commitment and say, I just want to be given to God. Now let me just bring this full circle. When I started, I read from Ephesians 4. When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. I know I've said it before many times, but God can only give what he's got. There are all kinds of people out there today who want to be in ministry of some sort, who want to have a leadership role, who want to be an apostle, a prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, and they think that somehow that they can find some route into ministry. The only route into ministry that I know is to be given to God because it's he who gives some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. And you cannot give what you haven't got. I can't give you what someone else owns. I can only give what I own. I believe that there are so many people that have got the potential to be transforming instruments in the hands of God if only they put themselves into the hands of God. (laughs) There are so many people out there. You sometimes see it in church and you think, wow, what could happen if you really got going? And you think, why don't they? Well, the answer is God can only give what he's got. And if people aren't prepared to put themselves unreservedly into his hands, then he can't unreservedly give them to the very people that he wants to give them to or in the way that he wants to give them. Right now, I think God wants to develop all of our potential. And the best place to be for your potential to be developed is in his hands. I remember walking down one of the departments in the hospital where I was training and feeling quite discouraged, you know, and I was saying, Lord, you know, what can you do in my life? You know, it's one of these moments where you think, just really not making it. And I was carrying something in my hand at the time and I remember so clearly God saying to me, if you put what you have into my hands, I will break it and use you to feed, or use it, as it were, my broken life to feed 5,000. It made such an impact on me that when we were given the option of choosing the church telephone number, we went for 4605000. It was just something that had made a big impact on my life. And it's true for all of us. If we're really prepared to put ourselves into God's hands, we're going to be surprised at the potential that God can develop. It's his potential after all. But what a transformation it can bring. Let's pray together. 
Father God, I just want to say thank you that you put something in us that's of worth and that you want to develop that. You want to use our lives. We might be chief of sinners and yet we can say too that we've been separated from our mother's womb. You've known us. Regardless of what our parenting is, we can see you working in our lives, shaping us, changing us. And Lord, we so want to be people that are pure, persistent, available for you. Lord, this may seem like a very basic step for launching into leadership, but right now we just give ourselves afresh to you. Lord, you can't give what you don't have. And Lord, maybe as with that bread that you broke, when we give ourselves to you, we're not going to recognise ourselves in the end. But Lord, that's your prerogative. Have your way as we give ourselves to you. We trust you, Lord. You are worthy. We want to be people that are reliable, pillars in your house. Lord, use us. Have your way in us. Whatever picture you use, Lord, we want to be pure. We want to be persistent. We want to be people that demonstrate the parenting that we've found in you as we've pitched our tents by the shepherd's tent and learnt how to feed the flock. Lord, whatever realm of leadership you're calling us into, whether it's small or great, Lord, we want to launch into that leadership and really see you work in and through our lives to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.